Hi y'all, you're listening to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile. Spun counter guy, thanks for stopping by. I should have told you all about this before, but a couple months ago, I ended up in South Florida for my wife's work, and so I thought I might try to hit up some organizations, typically museums or historical societies, for some interviews. Usually, I'm lucky if I get one or two people to agree to talk with me, but in Miami, almost solely because of one cold call to Cuban exile lawyer Nick Gutierrez, I scored six interviews with promises of more in the future. In addition, my wife and I got invited into folks' homes, were treated to meals, cigars, great stories, and even got some help when we had some car trouble. We were so touched by everyone's openness, and we deeply regret that we probably will never be able to return the kindness unless any of these kindred spirits end up in the middle of Kentucky. Anyway, I've put up two of these interviews already, the ones with Ricardo Paljosa on 189 and Nick Gutierrez on 192. And on this episode, we hear another of those individuals who had me into his home. Bill Muir was born in Cuba and, as a young man, got into some trouble with the communist. He had to flee the island but returned when he was part of the effort to reclaim Cuba for democracy and liberty, known as the Bay of Pigs invasion. Mr. Muir tells us about that experience in addition to some other high points of his life. I was born in Havana, Cuba in 1944. We had a very large family. Uh, there were several cousins and uncles that lived in the same humongous house. Uh, we had beautiful times, beautiful, beautiful times. Now, was your parents, had they been born in Cuba? Both of my parents were born in Cuba. Mother was born in Santi Espiritu, which is a city sort of in the middle of Cuba. And my father was born in Cascorro, which was a um, sugar mill, also somewhere in the middle of Cuba. Do you know why they came to Havana? My grandfather on my father's side was a Scot that uh, ended up working for um, Con Edison, the same one in New York, that was the part owner, half owner of the Cuban Electrical Company. So he was hired by them and he moved to to Havana. In the case of my maternal grandfather, he was a lawyer and he was hired by, I think it's the Bank of Canada that had a new branch in, in Havana and then a large part of the family moved there. So talk about the years I guess during the Baptista regime, you can talk about the myths versus the reality. Okay. At that time, I was going to school as a teenager. Probably, let's say, I started high school by by then. There's a picture of my high school back okay. there. It's called Belen Jesuit. There is a Belen Jesuit here now, which are the same order and some of the original priest came over. I think there's only one left now. It was a private school. I think that life was very, very good. We all wanted a change. We all understood that Batista was a dictator and there were being abuses 
to some degree, not as much as has been recorded, uh, especially uh, the left has this very clear understanding that they need to control the news. And they do very well. So they, they exaggerated a lot what was going on. But yes, we all wanted a change. I didn't see my life affected one way or the other, other than realizing very early on that we were going to go into a totalitarian system and that the Catholic Church was one of the biggest opponents and we were in trouble. Huh, that's completely different from the narrative, you know. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. But this was Batista's second round. He had already been a dictator up to 1940, left, came here to the U.S., and then went back, I think it's three months before general elections, that he uh, took over. Right. I think that Power is something that corrupts very easily. He got corrupted very, very quickly, not just by, as opposed to many, Batista gets into power because of the Communist Party. In Cuba, ever since, like, like in, in the U.S., the, there was a strong communist leftist sentiment that wanted to get in, and they couldn't. They were allowed to have a party, but they were not popular. The Cuban people did not want, even with Castro, didn't want communism. Mm -hmm. They wanted freedom. They thought, or we all, I was in, in the front of my house on January 9th, 1959. Castro comes by in his famous march coming into Havana. So you saw him. I saw him. Right. Castro goes to the same school that I did. My uncle, that was his classmate, is the only one who knew and said from the very beginning, this is trouble. He is ruthless. He has an ego that is bigger than the whole of Cuba. So <laughs> watch out. So you knew this even as he was driving by because you're... Well, we were blinded. Right. We, we thought that we would get true freedom, mm -hmm. and he said all of the right things. He said, I am not a communist. He said, I want freedom for everybody. I want free elections. I want this. You know, oh, okay, that's terrific. Right. There were many movements to, to get rid of Baptista. Do you, did you have any friends that were involved in that, or did you participate in any? Again, I was 15 right. years old at the time. Sports and girls were the two most important things in my life. <laughs> I, I knew that during Batista there was a, an attack on the presidential palace. The uh, a movement from the University of Havana organized an attack and they almost got to kill Batista. Mm. Okay? Uh, I was aware of that. The, as a matter of fact, schools were closed for a week or so because of all of the turmoil and so on. We were very much aware of Castro going up in the mountains. You know, like every youth, we felt that, oh my God, this is the, the thing. Mm -hmm. So I think we were very politically aware, very politically active in, in our family. Like I think in most, uh, and, and this is different than the American mentality. Mm -hmm. 
it is okay to discuss politics, <laughs> big time. All right. I mean, openly, daily, no matter. And you can almost go to blows with a family member and then hug out and, and that's it. <laughs> but we were aware of everything that was going on, no matter, even as young as I was at that time. So Castro takes over. He doesn't come through on any of his promises. And he clearly becomes a dictator fairly quickly. And you got involved in the underground movement, right? Yes. Okay, so explain how did, how did you were what, uh, 16, 17? 16. Yeah. What made you make that decision? Oh, I feel very strongly that you cannot be a bystander. You have to do the best that you can. There were no avenues of peace that were available to you. You could not go to the press. You could not go to a political entity and try to get this candidate elected or the other. So it ended up, ended up that the only thing was by force. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that the word is joined, but became part of a movement called the MRR, uh, which was one of the largest movements. And all that we did was print material that got information out of the reality of what was going on, tried to go to rallies. There were masses almost every week, a mass that became really a protest to what was going on. So all, all of that activity, as much as I was able to, I, I tried to do. Now, this information, was this intended for other Cubans or was it intended for the rest of the world? No, for the Cubans. Right. For the Cubans. Okay. Yeah. The, the, the newspapers were not printing anything close to the reality. Give you a, a, a very easy, for instance, that has nothing to do with what I did, but just to give you a, a for instance. The first sinner in this thing is Herbert Matthews, a reporter for the New York Times. Right. Herbert Matthews goes down to interview Castro in the mountains. Castro, very wisely, has only 63 men. Right. And he circles them around over and over and over. And that's the kind of misinformation that they are known for. And they have no qualms about doing anything. So to explain to listeners, if they're not aware of this incident, he, like you said, he only has like 63 men. And he would have them march by, but they kept like running around and then coming back again at, to make it seem like Correct. they had many, many, many more men. Correct. Right. Herbert Matthew thought he had thousands of men. Right. <laughs> yes. Dupes, uh, we say. Yes. Or useful idiots, maybe. Yes. Did you or any of your friends get in trouble while you were in, in the underground? Oh. <laughs> Part of what we started seeing, and it only took a week was people being put against the wall and being shot. A lot of those people we knew either firsthand or, or secondhand. And it wasn't unusual to be stopped in the middle of the street and picked up and taken away. Did your parents know you were involved? Uh, I don't think so. I, I tried, you know, I, I, I would have been in trouble at home sure. had they known. As a matter of fact, the story that I made up, my, my grandfather, like I said, was English. Mm-hmm. 
And remember, at that time, Jamaica was still a colony. Right. So we are told, we the, the organization, the MRR, works in a three-people nucleus. And you only have three that you know, with the idea that if there is a breach somewhere, you break up that chain and nobody else will get caught. Mm -hmm. So we get word that our superior has been cut, that we need to break up. So I go to my father and my mother and said, I need to get out of here in a hurry. Uh -huh. I was supposed to do, to blow up a electrical substation before I left that night, but you know, luckily nothing happened because whatever. But I, I my, my grandfather was able to get me a visa into Jamaica. So the next day I flew out of Cuba to Jamaica. That's the last time I was in, in, well, it's not the last time I was in Cuba, but that's how I left the first time. So the leader of your group got caught or? Yes. Okay, so everybody had to scatter. In Jamaica, I always thank God that I met the Canadian ambassador because the plan was to fly over to Toronto and sneak into the U.S. Well, that was my grandfather's basic plan. So I went to see the Jama the uh, Canadian ambassador, and the guy said, no, you, you don't want to do that. You want to go into the U.S. the proper way. So through his help and six weeks of a lot of uh, work, I was able to get my residency and came in legal to the U.S. Okay. Then when I got here, down here in one of the streets in the middle of Miami, there was a recruiting station for the CIA thing. So just walk in and... Did you have family in Miami? You no, know, by that time, all of my... I have five sisters and two brothers. My father and my mother were here. And little by little, all of my immediate family came over. Hoy... So how did you find out about the CIA? Oh, we knew from Cuba. We knew from Cuba that there was, we didn't know it was the CIA per se. As a matter of fact, I don't think we knew even until we got to Guatemala. We basically thought it was the U.S. Army that was training us. And it was, for, right. for the most part. In Cuba, we had heard that there was an, uh, people being trained and organized somewhere in Central America to come back and invade in Cuba. Mm -hmm. So when I come here to Miami, the only problem I ran into is that I needed, uh, if you were under 18, you needed the signature of both of your parents. And my father, since there was no work here in Miami, had gone to Chicago. And he didn't come back until February. So as soon as he got back, you know, I convinced him to sign the papers, and I got out of here March 30th or something like that. So you join this group that the CIA is training, and what, what was it called amongst yourselves? For us, it was El Frente, uh -huh. which is translated the front, right. the, the group. Uh, on 27th Avenue, which is a major artery here in Miami, and another street, there was a house, and you would walk in and sign up. Sort of a, a similar story to mine, 
a very good friend of mine who's now, who since married my cousin, he goes in, he signs up, he's underage, but his parents are in Cuba. So he walks out, finds a, a, magic, a, a whiteout, mm -hmm. changes the date so he can now join freely. You are taken from, from that house, you are taken to a place down in Coconut Grove, again, a house that everybody knew where it was and whatever. Then you were given a uniform. We were put into a bus that had the windows blacked out and we were taken, we didn't know where, but everybody more or less figured out, Opalaka Airport, mm -hmm. and we got on a plane down to Guatemala. In Guatemala, we drove up to the mountains and started doing, you know, got to the, the actual base where mm -hmm. the training was being done. How, how long was your training? <laughs> in my case, I get there April 1st, we moved to Nicaragua on April 11th or 12th, so basically 10, 12 days uh, that I got training. Uh -huh. Okay, well, so tell us about the night that you guys try to come into Cuba. Well, we get we were in, in uh, these boats. They're not military, uh, Navy-type boats. They're just a banana transports. Uh, a literal banana boat. It, yes, it is it, <laughs> yeah. a literal banana boat. Um, and we have a mass at like 4 o'clock on Sunday. And it because starts becoming, you know, have dinner afterwards. And then it's dark and everybody has to make silence. And we're about to go into Cuban waters. And we go into the bay. Our mission was to secure... Uh, one of the towns. So 12 o'clock at night or so, all of a sudden, fire breaks out. One of the patrol boats that we have, uh, where there is an American, uh, Greystone Lynch on, they are the ones who are carrying the uh, um, uh, frogmen, Navy SEALs, mm -hmm. to mark where the landing is supposed to go. And as they go in, they... Uh, stumble into Castro's people, okay. and the firefight begins. So, it, looking back, do you think that was the first bad misstep, or should have still went okay? Had it is that that happens, I think, in just about every landing. There, there's very very little possibility because everything is patrolled. I mean, it's not mm -hmm. like they don't know. I mean, they didn't know where we were going, mm -hmm. but they knew to to patrol the. The, the shore right and we had control over that very easily the the first day the april the 17th we control the area completely right. completely so you think things are going well well no no uh, 10 o'clock in the morning we're still on the boat because the landing crafts have all basically failed and there's no boats to get us off of the banana boat and now all of a sudden we see a plane and we thought it would be one of our planes mm -hmm. the biggest promise we're made is that the air will be controlled by the brigade right. that castro will have no air force able to do any harm if you know history you know that on the 15th 
instead of the bombardment that was supposed to be 16 planes, only eight are allowed to go. And the bombardment was supposed to be in the morning and in the afternoon of the 15th and the 16th, and the morning and the, after and the morning afternoon of both days. But that's when uh, Adelaide Stevenson complains in the uh, UN and Kennedy stops the bombing. Right. So Castro has basically three planes left. A B-26 like ours, a Sea Fury, which is an English fighter, and a T-33, which is a uh, propulsion uh, fast uh, plane, which we had no defense whatsoever for those. So basically, we are we don't control the air. They control the air. And all of a sudden, on, on the morning of, of the 17th, 10 o'clock, we are on, on the boat, it's called the Houston, and a plane starts diving towards the Houston. And we said, oh, this is one of ours. But then all of a sudden, we see the flickering coming out of the, and those are the tracers. Mm -hmm. So they're shooting at us big time. And to the point that the Houston gets hit by a rocket and loses the rudder so they cannot steer. Mm -hmm. um, and the captain, uh, Captain Morse, luckily and very wisely, uh, runs aground the, the ship so it won't sink. Mm -hmm. But now we're sitting ducks. We are maybe... When I first told the story, it was two miles. I'll cut it back to the probable reality. It's maybe a mile from shore. That's still a long uh, way. Yeah. It's still a long way, and a lot of the guys do not know how to swim. So it's decided that we need to uh, run a rope from the Houston to shore so people that do not know how to swim can hang on to the rope. And I and three others volunteered to, to do that. Uh, so they had a rope as long as a mile? Wow. But no boats, no rowboats. No rope, no, no boats of any kind. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, there was one little motorboat mm -hmm. and that only, I think, eight or nine people fit. And that one is doing back and forth. Oh, okay. But there's 200 people on, right. on the thing. So finally we get there, but the, the problem for me particularly is, of course, no boots, no weapon, no nothing, because I had to take everything off ah. to be able to, to swim. Right. So I spent those uh, five days that we were there running around without shoes, running around without, you know, nothing. We get captured on Friday... A little bitty story that when we get captured, the first thing that happens is that we are lined up on the water and the milicianos are told to not be behind us. So we feel that we're going to get shot right there and then. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, two Navy jets flying very, very low and they ran all over the place. But eventually they come back, uh -huh. and we are sent to Hirong, which is where they're the center, the, the smallest town. And then the next day we're put in the rastra, a sealed container meant to transport tobacco. We don't know how many people were put in. The owner of the truck line is one of us, 
and he goes to Camilo Cienfuegos, who's the commanding for, for the milicianos, and he tells him that, look, if you close that door, there's no air. People are going to die of asphyxiation. And uh, Camilo's uh, Cienfuegos' answer is, okay, we would save those bullets. So when you get to Havana, yeah. they won't be. So sure enough, when we got to Havana, nine people lie dead of a... I had one right next to me. I didn't know it was so dark, so you know, had no idea that he was there. And there was probably, I don't know, three inches of sweat and urine and condensation on the ground. It, it was a crime that did not need to be made. Right. And you guys tried to make holes, right? Oh, we did everything. Uh, I cannot assure completely this, but the first thing we tried to do is there's some uh, pieces of wood lining uh, like a whole bar. So we tried to take those off to see if, if we can. But imagine we're packed so tight together that there's no way of moving. So, and then the noise level is very high, and how can we communicate? Somehow we did. Since we could not, you know, that didn't solve any issues, the next thing that a lot of people tried was with the belt, belt buckle, with the seams of the, you know, two planks to try to uh, get a hole through. And, and we did. We got enough of a little bitty air to do that. But it, it, it was nowhere close to what it needed to be. And there were people who we had to put in because they were already in, in dire situations. Um, so they put their mouth against the hole. Right. right. What I think saved us, but I don't know because it's just my, my feeling. At, at one point, this, the trip takes almost nine hours. At one point, we say, you know, doesn't matter. Yeah. We're going to get killed anyway, so right. what the hell? <laughs> so somehow we are able to sway back and forth with the idea of overturning oh. the, the thing. And it starts to work. And all of a sudden the truck stops. Okay? And I hear, and I think a lot of people heard the same thing, noises. And what I think happened is that the milicianos were terrified and took their weapons and shot at the truck. And those might have opened holes. And that's how we were able to survive, that's or a lot of us were able to survive to the end. Wow. And they didn't happen to hit anybody with the bullets? No. So they're just trying to scare you off? Right, right. Okay. Right. Wow. What a, yeah. That makes sense, though. I'm, I'm, yeah. I've, I've talked to many of my friends that went through the same experience, uh -huh. and you know, we say, you know, probably, you know, yeah. could, could have been, but there, there's, I mean, when we got to Havana, we were so, that, that there was no way of us looking at anything. Right. With the Castro government completely victorious over the invading rebels, there is despair and confusion among the relatives of the insurgents. In Miami, they besiege the headquarters of the Revolutionary Democratic Front, seeking some news of sons and brothers. 
with Castro claiming the capture of 500 invaders and threatening them all with the firing squad, these weeping women see no chance for their loved ones. So talk about your detention in Havana and how, how long were you? You were imprisoned, right? There was, in total, it was 20 months that we had in, in prison. And where was the prison at? I was in three different places. There was a fourth, and I'll, I'll go through a little bit of that. The first thing that they put us was in a basically it was a basketball stadium. I had gone there to play basketball mm -hmm. uh, before. So they, they didn't know what to do with us. Castro knew immediately. As a matter of fact, he, uh, the first day they started shooting prisoners as they caught him, but then Castro said, no, 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 I, I, won, I won all of them. Because he understood that we had a much bigger value for, for ransom. Eventually the U.S. paid $53 million uh, in supposedly uh, medicines and supposedly tractors and supposedly this and that, but uh, there was a lot of money. <laughs> but anyways, the first prison was a sports palace, but we only lasted there th like three weeks. Then we were transported to an unfinished uh, Navy hospital. Again, they had no place set up for anything, so they put us there. We lasted there a couple of weeks, maybe three. And then they took us to El Castillo del Príncipe, which is a uh, Spanish old castle. That, that's where they, they housed us uh, for the most time. Halfway through the 20 months, negotiations for the release and the ransom were not going on. So Castro came up with this trial that we were going to be tried for our crimes. Of course, we were convicted even before the trial came in or started. We were divided depending on the influence or the perceived economic power of your family. So you were either worth 25000 50000 or 100000 and then the three major directors uh, of the brigade were 500000 And it all added up to $53 million. Wow. The 100000 group was, after the trial, transported to what was called then uh, Isle of Pines, which is now called uh, Isla de la Juventud or some other name, whatever. Uh, to a prison that had been there, Castro had been in that prison, whatever. Uh, and then on December 23rd of 62, basically we, we got released on the 23rd and the 24th. We were flown into Homestead Air Force Base, given uniform, given the most wonderful food that I have ever had in my life. <laughs> And then, yes, released, uh, brought to Miami, and released to the family. A la esposa que sufre en silencio el cruel abandono. You mentioned that before the. And by the way, this is called the Bay of Pigs invasion. I don't think we ever mentioned that. Uh, that that y'all took mass. Uh, was faith a big part of your life before that? And and did it become different while you were imprisoned? Just to give you, uh, a, for instance, my home where I was born had a church in it. 
Uh, I attended Belen Jesuit School, which was a very prominent uh, Catholic school in, in Havana. Yes, my faith has always been the most important part of my life. I think everything that I do has to do with the motto that the Jesuit have, MDG, a mayor gloria de Dios, to the great glory of God. I don't think life is anything if there is no God with you. Right. So that probably, I assume, gave you comfort that what you were doing was right, it had a purpose, and if you died in the process, that was okay? Well, the, the, the problem is at 17, you don't think of death in any way, shape, or form. You really think of the adventure. Okay. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I mean, I'd be ingenuous if, if I said anything else. Right. I had a bunch of my friends next to me. We wanted freedom for Cuba, and this was the only way. The adventure was the only thing that we saw. Right. We didn't see the perils in any way, shape, or form. But did you still find yourself praying during those 20 months? Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. I pray every day. Right, okay. <laughs> that, 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 I mean, it, it's very, very important to me, and I think to humankind, that you understand that you're not here because of you. You're here because he put you here and... Uh, you would not be another day if it had not been for his grace. You know, it's just the way it is. That's been so many years ago. That was in 1961. 61, 62, yes. And, of course, a lot of information has come out since then. A lot of stuff has been declassified, I assume. So looking back, obviously the lack of air support was the, the thing that kind of doomed you all, right? Explain to people who, again, may not know about this incident... What happened? What what went wrong? Why did they kind of abandon you in a way? It was going back on on your word. Kennedy, the, the original plan was Eisenhower's and Nixon's. Mm-hmm. It changed. The plan changed a couple of times. But Kennedy picked up the plan, and Kennedy and his election nonsense wanted the freedom of Cuba and wanted Castro to be out and all that. So we believe that he was promising. And, and I mean, we had no control. The, 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 the forces in, in the invasion were all determined and decided by the Americans. Mm-hmm. There was no Cuban say in, in any. The concept of you, have, you must have control of the air during a landing. There, you know, Normandy, whatever, sure. whatever you want to look at as an example, you have to control the air. And uh, Kennedy's refusal when Adelaide Stevenson complained doomed us. Okay? We, we wanted to free Cuba ourselves. We didn't want American lives to be put in, in harm's way. But at least the plan that you worked on, the plan that you convinced us that would work, follow that, and that was not followed. Does anybody know why Kennedy changed his mind? And did he ever admit he made a mistake, do you know? Uh, I think he, he did admit he made a mistake. 
Uh, I don't think that we will ever know for sure the reasoning behind it. I think that the, the, the reasoning that makes sense to me is that Russia said, if you mess, if you keep this up, we'll go into Turkey, oh, yeah. which is basically what happened afterwards when the missile crisis. Right. And that was the fear that he would end up with a much bigger war in, all over the world. That, that's it, what I think pulled them back. And correct me if I'm wrong, but for folks listening, uh, the United States had nuclear missiles in Turkey, is that right? Or we, we had some kind of military? In 62, yes. Yes, yes. Oh, definitely. No, no, no. You had mm-hmm. the whole base and everything. Right. Yeah. And, so, matter of fact, I think we still do. And the Soviets didn't like that. and that's No, no. That's, be, that's too close to them. Right. And that's why they wanted to put missiles in Cuba. Yes. The brigade, the Cubans in general, of course, blame the U.S. as a whole, but in reality, Kennedy. You know, the, the, the blame really goes back to Kennedy. But I think one thing that Americans don't know is we get back on December of 1962. In April of 1963, 207 Bay veterans joined the U.S. Army. 67 of those stay for 20 or more years. One makes general, seven or eight make lieutenant uh, colonel, a whole bunch makes uh, lieutenant colonel, captain, whatever. You yourself joined the army, right? Yes, yes. I, but I, I go different. I, I go later on because I go to high school first. Right. But what I want to point out is that we still felt, okay, Kennedy made a mistake, but we believe in the United States and we believe that we need to help. In, in that case was when Vietnam was going on, so we need to go there. As a matter of fact, most of the brigade members were involved in little bitty things that most people don't know in Santo Domingo, in the Dominican Republic in 1965. There's an overthrow and the U.S. Army is sent to go in and quiet things down. And most of them are from the 82nd Airborne, where most of the brigade members were. There is two old-timers talking politics About the Bay of Pigs and now for 66 Willie Chirino on the radio Che Guevara is no hero It's just another day Southwest side. You know, you, you saw what you saw, and of course, I would say most Cuban exiles, you know, they, they remember, they won't, they won't forget. <laughs> and it's just like the Jews won't forget about the Holocaust, and, and I think that's good. And they won't let other people forget also. Unlike with the Jews, which we have recognized, the, the mainstream culture will recognize what happened there. But I don't want to equate the two exactly, but you know what I'm trying to say. Sure. There's a difference when it comes to victims of communism, in my opinion, that the, you know, the mainstream narrative or the media or the academia, they have a different view of things. Or they try to justify, for example, what Castro did. Or they try to they even defend other dictators. They'll, they'll, they romanticize it a little bit. So you've got to see this stuff every day. And you Very much. I just got uh, yesterday with a friend... Uh, we were talking about the 
and this goes to the modern times, but mm -hmm. I don't know if you want to jump into yes. that. We were talking about the issues with immigration now. Mm -hmm. And I said, I mean, I don't agree that you will come into my house without me inviting you. Nobody comes into my house mm -hmm. if I don't invite them. But I think that somebody is forgetting. ICE troops went into a home here in Miami and grabbed Ilian Gonzalez at gunpoint. Right. Where was the outrage? Right. How come? And, and that kind of thing really bothers because there's a two-standard thing when apparently when it's to the left, it's okay, mm -hmm. but when it's to the right, it's not. You know, as we speak, we have actual socialists in our government now. They've been freely elected, as far as we can tell. And, of course, you've got to think, like, you know, we've already tried this. It didn't work. It didn't work in Cuba. It didn't work in the Soviet Union. It didn't work in China. You can, you can go through all these countries. And they'll say, well, it wasn't done correctly, or that was, that was different. What do you say to a young person who probably is sincere? They look on paper. They say, that looks like a good deal. You know, everybody's taken care of. You know, there's more equality and all that kind of stuff. Explain why you think it, it's, it's not going to work again, or ever. <laughs> the only thing that humans really do that dictates progress is the freedom to do whatever you feel and whatever you are capable of doing. The moment you have a government or some entity dictating your every move and how controlling they can be, then you lose interest. And that, that's the, the, the perfect example of what happened in Cuba. Cuba, in 1958, the Cuban peso was worth a dollar three. Even in spite of all of the dictatorship problems and everything, okay, I can rattle one right after the other of the many things that Cuba was right there. I mean, U.S., Canada, Cuba was the third country in the Western Hemisphere in everything. What happened in, in two years, it didn't take that long, in two years, everything got controlled by the government. So the government will tell you what you were able to plant, when would you harvest, where did you live, where did you... everything. So what did the human being said? Oh, I don't need to do anything. And then everything starts dropping and dropping and dropping. U.S. Today. I had the argument last night with my 19-year-old granddaughter. Okay. <laughs> What do you think, I asked her, what do you think about free college? Why should all of the debt that the students have, why shouldn't the government pay for them? Oh yes, that's terrific and that, that would be very good because then I would go to school and whatever. And I said, do you, have you thought who's going to be paying that? It's going to be free for you, but somebody else is going to pay for it. Her mother was next to her and said, Are you going to pay for it? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> right. The allure of the government giving stuff is very, very big. It entices just about everybody. But the reality, and the thing is, by the time that the reality sets in, it's too late. Mm -hmm. Because there is no free election. This is such an 
beautiful, incredible country. We have had elections after elections. People have come from this point of view, from that point of view. You can say whatever you want and nothing happens. It's just your opinion and you're welcome to your opinion. And in, in my case, I feel that I defended your right to give your, your opinion and I will do so to, to my death. But I hear this and it's been going little by little more and more and more. And it seems like when um, Democrats are in power, it seems to get louder because it seemed like when Clinton was president, he started to wobble, but then Obama. Another part of the argument last night in Cuba, there is no, and never has been that I think, uh, race issues. As a matter of fact, maybe 50% of the population of Cuba is black, and the other 50 is maybe not all white, but you know, uh, there is no doubt that the even today, the higher ups are mostly white. But uh, I don't think we had a a race problem here ten years ago. I mean, yes, there was always discrimination to some degree, but there was discrimination with the Irish when they came in. There was discrimination with the Chinese came in. There has always been discrimination to the foreign, to the Mexicans, to whatever. The Cubans, I don't know if I can say this correctly. First of all, we are not immigrants. We are exiled. We came because we were running from horrible situation. We didn't come to seek a better life. We came leaving what was a few beautiful, fantastic life and having to hustle like crazy. Just to live. Just to, to, to make. Yeah. And the Cubans were, you know, there are people who, I, I never had that thing. There were people who were told that they would not rent to Cubans. And I see the other side of the story too. We bottle into a one bedroom uh, efficiency, 22 people. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and there was a complaint and then there was a, you know, sure. whatever. No more tears, no pain, no woe in this wicked world below. Then will you be ready to go home? So I don't want to say that that was all your life, like your life ended in 1962, but... Uh, what have you done since you've been in the United States? What are some of the highlights for you? First of all, I go I go to high school at night, but I work during the day in a construction business, in a construction company, laying water pipes and whatever. And that is all through the Rotary Club of Ormond Beach that uh, sort of adopted me. They paid for the schooling. Afterward, after high school, GE was given a, cla- a, a course in um, technology, as a matter of fact, was the beginning of computers, sort of, in, in, at that moment. Uh, they paid for all of that schooling. I had to go to work during the day still, uh, live at home and, and whatever. And my hope was to go to Cape Kennedy to work after I finished the two years. 
when I went to Cape Kennedy to take the entrance uh, test that they were giving for all of the companies, I was also told that I had to go into the draft. So I said, nah, I don't want to... I, I understood that the drafts were treated differently than the ones who volunteer. So I went ahead and, and volunteered and uh, went into uh, basic training, advanced infantry training, jump school, became a paratrooper. After a year and a half or so, I said, what am I going to do? When I get out of the army, I have to find a, a job of some sort. And I had my intentions, when I saw that I had to serve, I said, I'll go into the Air Force and take a computer course that they had. But it didn't work out. So the Army did have one, but it required me to re-enlist again. So I had to, I ended up doing a little bit over five years in the Army, one of those in Vietnam. Thankfully, it was behind a computer. Uh -huh. So all of the horror stories of Vietnam, I did not basically suffer. I, you know, saw things like everybody else. Right. But I was not involved in battle. You know, it was pretty, pretty pleasant. Uh, came back to Miami to work for Burger King uh, in their computer department. Eventually, after a couple of other places, I opened my own computer business. And that's what I did until I retired in, in uh, 2005. Had a wonderful wife, or have a wonderful wife. <laughs> uh, three, three children. My biggest pride in, in that sense is that each of them has their master's degree. Each of them has been very helpful in their profession. Two of them are teachers. My son is a uh, executive of a very large company in, in, uh, in California. And now we enjoy the six grandkids, which is the biggest blessing God can give anybody, uh, is being able to, to enjoy the, the old age with the grandkids. Hopefully folks hearing this, they think they, they want to do something. They try to make the world a better place. How would you advise how to make the world a better place without making it a worse place? And I think you know what I mean. Like sometimes, like I said earlier, I was probably young and a zealot and might have pushed people away from my views. Or, or and there's other folks that do even worse things, you know. What would you advise? Let's use my grandkids as, as my, I have a 23-year-old all the way down to a 17-year-old. And my mantra with them is get involved. Don't be on the sidelines. If you feel somebody is saying something that you really believe in, try to help. You know, do it. Don't like in politics. You mean. Or church or, or whatever. It doesn't really matter. The, the worst thing that I see is apathy of people who say, I live in my world and I don't care what happens everywhere else. We live in communities and we have to be part of that community in some way. And hopefully it's for good. I mean, and you can find, no matter what, you can find how you can help. Politics is a very important part. It's becoming 
more critical today, I think, than it used to be. And there are issues today that are very different. It's either black or white. There's very little gray nowadays. And so if, if you feel strongly, you should get very much involved. You should help uh, financially. You should help physically, whatever you can contribute. But don't, don't, sit, there, don't sit around. So obviously Cuba is a country that you love and you were willing to die for it. Do you ever want to go back? Well, to, to answer the question correctly, I was also willing to die for this country. Right. So uh, I feel that I am like a person from Massachusetts. You know, I could be very happy being a Bostonian, but I'm a, an American. I'm very happy being a Cuban, but I'm also an American. I would love to be able to go back to Cuba and help reconstruct Cuba. If I am able to contribute in any way, shape, or form, that would be, you know, the icing on the cake. I think it's going to happen. We've been waiting 60 years, so what the hell is a couple of more years <laughs> if it has to be? But what Cuba can be, Castro's crimes are incredible. The number of people that were killed, the number of families that were separated, we haven't talked because I wasn't part of it, but probably the most vivid example of the cruelty to Cubans was the Pedro Pan story. 14,000 kids were sent to the United States unaccompanied, and nobody knew when they would get back together, if they were getting back together with their parents. And just to think what those kids have produced, you have Mel Martinez, who became not only a senator, but a secretary of uh, commerce, I think it was. You know, you have writers like Carlo Haiti. You have people that have, you know, made themselves incredible persons and came out of that tragedy. That, that, that to me is one thing that I always love to mention because I think that that needs to be driven. But Carlo Haiti, for one, he would love to go back to, to reconstruct a beautiful Cuba because that's where we came from. That's my mind is American, but my heart is Cuban. Look out for some more Miami-based interviews, which I'll space out over the next few months. And if you're still in a military veteran mood, you might check out In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, number 57, where we talk to a survivor of the 1944 Normandy invasion, Mr. Ivy Agee. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Whoa. Bye-bye.